suit up, strap in, and hammer down. This is Dirt Life, the official podcast of the Dirt Collective. Now, here's your host, Jeremy Cross. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Dirt Life podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Cross. And today, before we get started, got a kind of cool announcement to make. Uh, We've actually got a sponsor for the podcast now. Uh, High Octane Coffee will be the official coffee of the Dirt Life podcast. Uh, And with that news, we thought it'd be only fitting that we have the founder and owner of High Octane Coffee, uh, former monster truck driver, current sprint car driver, just all around badass dude, uh, Joe Sylvester on the show today. So we'd like to welcome Joe to the the program. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going awesome, man. I'm glad to... uh... Glad you invited me on your podcast and uh, happy to partner High Octane Coffee with uh, Dirt Life. It's, it's really a couple brands that coincide well together. My, my brand of High Octane is, I always tell people it's the merger of, it's a head-on collision of motorsports and uh, artisan coffee, two things that generally don't really go together. And um, my, the, you know, High Octane is 180 degrees in the opposite direction of any kind of coffee shop or coffee company you've ever seen. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's a super cool brand. I mean, I was uh, I actually got the uh, the sample pack you sent today, and super bummed because it's at uh, it's at my mailbox, and you know, thanks Round Rock Post Office, they put like the mailboxes like every two blocks basically. So I haven't had a chance to uh, to go get it yet, but man, I can't wait to try it. And you know, I've seen all the stuff that you uh, you post on social media. The shop itself uh, looks cool, and you actually have like uh, like three or four shops now, right? I've actually got two. Um, I closed my original shop to open my new one that we just opened in November. Um, it's just a much better location. The building itself is badass. It's an old service garage, and we got the service bays with the garage doors and stuff like that. Uh, and my second other location is a franchise that opened last July. I got into franchising High Octane Coffee Company so they can be opened by franchisees all over the country. So, And that's actually the first one. So I technically actually only own one physical store um but uh, it's it's definitely growing man that's awesome well anyone listening who is in the round rock or austin texas area uh if you open one up you will guaranteed have uh one customer there every day for sure um because it just it, it looks super super sick man so um well cool man if you're ready let's uh, let's just get on to it because i know that you have a, a a super cool story man and i'm i you know i can't wait to to hear about it for sure yeah, man, I appreciate that. It's definitely um, probably one of the most unconventional stories in, in dirt track. And, um, you know, same thing with the coffee industry, too. There's some, probably the only coffee roaster in the entire world that races sprint cars and has flown a monster truck almost the length of a football field. Yeah, man. So, so t- talk to me about that, man. How did you get started kind of in, in motorsports? Well, um, I give you kind of my 60-second elevator speech, which it's a hell of a lot longer than 60 seconds, but <laughs> it's kind of the, the recap of, of, you know, what, what fueled my passion and what kind of kicked it all off. I, I started racing when I was about 12 years old, um, maybe yeah, about 11 or 12. I started racing RC cars and started racing BMX bikes and got into motocross when I was about 12 years old. Um, and up until that point, I kind of played team sports, a little bit of football, baseball, you know, and I was kind of fed up with it. You know, I was, I was always kind of the outcast. I was a rebel and I didn't like authority at all. Um, you know, I just kind of like to do my own thing and push myself. And just one day I just, I just started riding dirt bikes and started and riding BMX bikes. And I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the freedom and the individuality with it. And the fact that the only person that was going to push me to become any better was me. Um, you know, there was, there was no other outside force that was going to make me get better other than how bad I wanted it. 
And I think when I saw my first Krusty Demons of Dirt video, um, you know, back in those days before YouTube and everything was on the damn internet, you know, you actually had to go and buy VHS or DVD <laughs> of all, to see what all the cool stuff that was going on, you know. And when I seen that video, I was like, wow, these guys are so cool. They're riding dirt bikes, making money. That's what I want to do, you know. I'm, I'm, you know, so my dream was to become a professional motocross rider and shortly after to become a professional freestyle motocross rider because I, I was kind of drawn to that even more so than the racing side of it. So through my teen years, throughout middle school, high school, I started getting more heavily involved actually in downhill mountain bike racing. Um, and at the same time, I started kind of pursuing a career in freestyle motocross. And this, at this time, it was on dirt bikes. I was about 16. Um, and uh, I, made the, I ended up going semi-pro with downhill mountain bike racing. And then I kind of, kind of gave it up and just kind of left mountain bike as a training, as a training hobby um, to pursue, you know, getting into freestyle motocross heavily. Um, and like most all freestyle motocross riders, I suffered a very, very bad injury when I was about 16 that took me out for a very long time and, and uh, almost killed me. And um, my parents were like, okay, you're done. You're never riding dirt bikes again, you know. So I got into car racing when I was about, you know, end of my 16, when I was about 17 years old. And um, I actually got into um, SCCA racing, you know, like SCCA solos. Sure. Um, you know, I had a third gen twin turbo RX-7, you know, that was about time when Fast and Furious came out. So everybody thought they were Fast and Furious and we were street racing <laughs> and going to the track on the weekends and racing each other. And then I got into the road course stuff because I really liked, you know, the whole aspect of doing more than just driving straight. And around that time, you know, I was 17 and, and the car that I was racing was, was street legal, you know, barely. Um, and I just got way, way too stupid with it. And fortunately, I had enough sense to know that I'm going to kill myself in this car or I'm going to kill somebody else. So I need to get rid of this damn thing. And uh, I sold it and then I got into quads. And at the time I was like, you know, I'm going to get back into bikes one day. That's my passion. I'm going to get back into motocross. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything with these quads. I'm going to sell this thing and get a dirt bike. And I ended up getting really good on the quad better than I ever was on a bike. And before you know it, I was modifying it and I started racing motocross on quads. And then I started jumping freestyle on quads. Um, me and a buddy of mine actually had a, a steel ramp and we traveled and we did fair shows and monster truck shows and stuff like that. And we were doing freestyle motocross on quads and we got paid to do it. And, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but once again, I, I, when I was uh, about 19 or 20 years old, I had a really bad crash again and I uh, broke my back in two places. And after that, I was kind of like, well, you know, the way I'm going, I'm either going to wind up in a casket or in a wheelchair. And so I better, I better look into something with a cage around me. So that's what got me. And, you know, at the time I was also racing go-karts too. I kind of got into karting right about the same time I was racing sprint karts you know, asphalt road course stuff. Me and my dad got into it pretty heavily. We were running 125 carts and um, really started honing in on my, my driving skills a lot. And I was like, you know, maybe this is where it's at. You know, maybe this is the transition I need to go to, kind of give up the dream of jumping motorcycles for a living and, and get into something with a cage around me. And I was always involved in big lifted trucks and mud trucks and stuff. And we were always jacking our trucks up and everything. So I started getting involved around with guys in the monster truck industry um, between that and people that I had met when I was riding freestyle motocross. And um, I was like, you know what? This is kind of cool. You know, I wasn't like ever like a monster truck super fan or anything like that. I just thought they were cool and it would be really cool to do one day. And, you know, long story short, through some different things that I, different people I got involved with and stuff, I realized that I can make it a profession. So at 22 years old, 
I was actually able to secure the funding that I needed from a bank to go and buy a semi-truck and a monster truck. And I went truck driving school, got my CDL and everything. And at 22 years old, I, I bought a used monster truck and rebuilt it the way I thought it should be done and went out there and started driving the living hell out of it, pounded it into the ground week in and week out and uh, started building up a name, you know, pretty quick. And, uh, you know, by my second year, uh, when I was about 23 years old, I was doing it full time. I actually gave up karting for a little while because I didn't have time to do it. And I was on the road from that point on for my entire 20s, about 45 weeks a year um, out on the road doing shows everywhere from, uh, you know, places like uh, Tyler County Speedway in West Virginia to uh, Dallas Cowboys football stadium um, and everything in between. So it was, uh, it, was a, it was quite a ride for somebody that was in their 20s. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, and as I got to my, you know, the end of my, you know, career, I should say, uh, around 2013, I had done a couple world record jumps. I had won a racing championship in Las Vegas for Monster Jam, and I started kind of looking into what's my next thing that I want to do. You know, it was getting harder and harder to make a living with a monster truck. Uh, it's extremely, extremely abusive on your body. Um, and it was just the way it was going with corporate companies and stuff that were running the show. And um, I just kind of saw that there wasn't much future in it, uh, at least at the time. So I started, I, I come across short course off-road racing. And I went to a Lucas Oil race. I went to a Torque race. And I was like, wow, this is badass. Sure. This is what I need to do. This is like <laughs> motocross, but in a truck. You know, at the time... You know, I had been to the dirt track, you know, Sharon Speedway is my local track. I had been there. I'd watched racing, you know, and I had even done mantra truck shows at Sharon Speedway during dirt track races. And I was tell, I would tell myself, yeah, you know, one day when I get older, when I slow down a little bit, maybe I'll get into this dirt track stuff. But for right now, I'm going to keep pounding the hell out of a monster truck, you know. And um, but uh, when I got out of it, and I got into short course off road racing. Um, I had a pretty successful first year at it. I ran a program for a couple other guys out of California where I had the whole operation out of my shop. You know, I had three trucks. I had my truck plus two other trucks for guys. I did all the prep work and transported them to the to the races and, you know, put them underneath my awning and everything. And I had a couple guys working for me. Um, and, it, and it was pretty cool, you know, but there was just no money in it. Um, I, I had no money to put into it. I relied solely on sponsors. And, uh, you know, guys paying me to work on their stuff. Um, but uh, the, the series kind of really fell apart the next year, and so did some of my sponsorship budget. So I was like, you know, this is, this is way too difficult to try to make a living at this, you know. And at the time, I, had, I wasn't doing, I had no other job. I had raced my whole life. I'd raced monster trucks, you know. Um, so I never had any other kind of a job or anything like that other than truck driving. You know, I was, I was driving... You know, I had my custom Peterbilt that I hauled my race cars with, and I was going and hauling steel and stuff like that with a flatbed to kind of make ends meet. And um, I got out of short course, and I started looking at a dirt track race. And, and I was like, oh, you know, this is – I started looking more and more into it. I started seeing that, you know, you could get paid doing it, you know, when you go to the races and stuff. And everything was close all of a sudden. Instead of – like short course off-road was either all the way out in California or way the hell up in Michigan and Wisconsin and stuff like that. Um, you know, and it was, uh, you know, the closest race was Charlotte and that was only one race. So it wasn't a whole lot of racing for, a, for a lot of money. Um, so I was looking in a dirt track. I'm like, Oh, I could race every single weekend and never have to drive further than an hour or two from home. So I got into late models for a year. And then, uh, after that got into 600 micro sprints 
and then really found that I really liked the open wheel stuff a lot. So my next progression was to get into a 305 sprint car. Um, so that was kind of my goal. And last year we ran uh, 305 uh, around the local area, did, did fairly well. And this year we're moving up to 410. I did some wingless stuff last year and um, I really like the wingless stuff a lot. So this year we're, I'm trying to have two complete cars ready to go, uh, both with 410 motors, a wingless car and a wing car. So. There you go. In uh, 10 minutes, there's my 60-second elevator. <laughs> that, that, is, that is badass, man. Um, yeah, nothing like jumping in kind of with both feet, uh, going straight from you know, 305 to, to a 410, man. I Tons of respect um, for making that move. So, like, when you were growing up, like, was your was your dad, like, super into to motorsports? I mean, you know, you kind of said you, you played a little bit of, like, stick and ball sports. Um, kind of how did, like, your whole kind of, like, a, you know, your passion for motorsports kind of come about? Well, my dad, he wasn't really super, super into racing, but he was always into cars. He always loved hot rods and stuff and was always taking me to hot rod shows. And, you know, he never had the money to have a hot rod himself. And, um, you know, it was between hot rods and Ferraris, you know, like two <laughs> complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Like his two favorite cars are like a 32 Deuce Coupe hot rod with no fenders on it and a big blower motor sticking out of the front or a Ferrari. Like it's two complete opposite things, but those are his favorite cars. And he absolutely loved Ferraris. Um, but he was always big into cars when he was a, when he was in high school. He had cool cars. He had a Trans Am like in Smokey and a Bandit, and he'd show me pictures of it. And you know, he was always at the drag strip when he was a kid. He was an announcer at the drag strip. He ran the tree. He did a little pinstriping for people on cars and stuff. So he kind of, I mean, he never really pushed it. It was really not until I was about 12 years old, like I said, that you know, a couple guys that worked with my dad bought dirt bikes. And they got my dad to get a dirt bike, and he's like, "Well, I'm not gonna. I want my son to do this too." I, you know, he had a dirt bike when he was a little kid, so he got me into dirt bikes, and I went and bought my first dirt bike when I was 12. It was a 1986 YZ125. I bought it for $800, um, and I thought that was the greatest damn thing in the world, you know. And and to this day, those are some of my fondest memories in my entire life. Was when I was a kid, getting up early in the morning on a Saturday, loading up my dad's van and uh, heading out to the local hills to go ride dirt bikes with my dad. That's awesome. Were, were you guys in uh, Ohio at that time uh, too, or, or where were you guys at? Oh, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been here in Ohio my entire life. Um, you know, I've been around the world. I've been every single major place in the United States. Um, you know, and this is still where I live. Um, you know, I live in Canfield, Ohio now. My parents still live in a house that I was pretty much born in, in Boardman. And uh, actually, my new coffee shop is less than a mile away from you know, where I was born. Um, and uh, that's kind of like my hometown and that's where I've been from. And, you know, now that I'm, I'm so deeply rooted here with my business, um, it also makes a lot of sense uh, racing wise too with now with my new goals um, of what I want to achieve in dirt track racing. It makes a lot of sense to stick around here because like I said, within an hour and a half, there's a half a dozen different tracks that are really good. We got Sharon Speedway, Lernerville, Wayne County, um, you know, a lot of really good tracks right in my backyard. Yeah, man, just uh, just rub that in because I think I have to drive about three and a half hours to see uh, a single 305 race here in Texas. So, um, yeah, if, if you guys could do something about the uh, the winners up there, uh, I would I would be in Ohio in a heartbeat because the, the racing from everything that I've seen is uh, just fantastic, man. And I, I really hope to get up there. Um, 
So that, that's crazy, man. So, so let's talk a little bit about kind of like your, your monster truck days because that's um, uh, a super unique background. And I'm, I'm really interested to kind of know, um, you know, what that grind was like. You know, you said you were, you were on the road like 45 days a year. Um, I mean, what was that like, uh, you know, not only kind of just like the, the toll that it took on the truck and kind of having to, to make repairs on the road there, but kind of like also the toll that it, that it took on your body? Oh, it's actually 45 weeks a year we were oh, on the road. <laughs> yeah, dude. But, um, you know, sometimes three months on end uh, during the first quarter of the year, which was always like the busiest, he- most hectic, um, you know, season. Now, when we do 45 weeks, keep in mind some of those weeks we would do three to five shows in a weekend. Um, sometimes you would do a Friday show and two Saturday shows. And as the sport progressed and as the business progressed, um, by the end of my career, I, I still do it part-time. So I, when I say the end of my career, I mean the end of my career when I was doing it full-time. Uh, we were doing as many as five shows in a weekend. One Friday night, two Saturday, and two on Sunday. Um, it was absolutely insane. Um, I, I Now, being involved in sprint cars, I, I could kind of see a lot of similarities with like the World of Outlaws tour. Um, just you're on the road nonstop you know, living out of a rig, bouncing around from town to town, working out of parking lots or friends shops along the way. And everybody kind of helps each other out, get to the next performance. Um, that's basically exactly the way it was with monster trucks. Um, the only thing I can say that's different about it would be that, um, it'd be like crashing your car into the wall every night (laughs) (laughs) because every single night you're absolutely just destroying the hell out of that truck and um, cobbling it together to make to the next show. Nice thing about it was you didn't have to win to make money. You were contracted to do a performance and come, you know, win, lose, or draw. You know, you had a check at the end of the weekend. So, like, did you ever get uh, injured uh, uh, driving the monster truck? I've been knocked out a couple of times, mainly just a lot of um, sore back. You know, it's a lot of of lateral compressions. Um, It's, uh, I actually, I've literally shrunk, actually, over the, the years that I've drove monster trucks, I've shrunk about an an inch and that's not even an exaggeration. Um, and I'm actually paying for it quite a bit right now. I've been going to therapy for my back and I hurt my back, um, around September last year. And I'm still trying to get it back to a hundred percent by building up my core muscles and stuff like that. I just so many years of, uh, abuse in a monster truck and then bouncing down the road in a tractor trailer when you're done, it was, it was uh, very abusive on the body, like no broken bones or anything like that. But, um, you know, they, they really beat the hell out of you. Like it's literally like being in a car crash six to seven times in one freestyle run. Um, no matter how good you have the truck working, you're always pushing it harder. And sometimes it don't fly through the air exactly the way you want it to. And, you know, just lands like, you know, like a ton of bricks. So um, that just, it's a, definitely a lot of physical abuse, but it was, de- it was a lot of fun. You know, I got to travel and, and, and see a lot of stuff, meet a lot of people. Um, actually my first time at a lot of major dirt tracks across the country was for monster truck shows. Yeah. And that's a, another sport that seems like has a, a great fan base, um, there as well. So what then, uh, kind of what led you, uh, to, to be able to do the, uh, the world record drunk, try to, try to kind of talk me through that a little bit. Well, actually, um, from when I very first got into monster trucks, I said, I wanted to do it. You know, I wanted to do something that would make my name stand out from what everybody else was doing. Um, because really in the sport, um, uh, especially some of the bigger shows, you know, the, the promotion company really just, they focus a lot on the trucks and not so much the drivers. And I always wanted to make sure that my name outshined the name of my truck because 
the truck was nothing without me. You know, I built the truck, I drove the truck, and it was hard to kind of break the mold of the way they promoted that. Um, so I was like, you know what, instead of just going and doing these shows like everybody else does and rely on the promotion companies to make something of me, I'm going to go out there and, you know, make something of myself without, without any input from them. So it was and that, and it was just a challenge that I had for myself. You know, uh, Bigfoot had the record for a very long time. Um, they went 202 feet in 1999, I believe it was. And um, nobody had ever even tried it since then. Uh, so then there I was, you know, this young punk kid in his early 20s with a, an old school truck, you know. And I mean, I was building my own shocks and stuff like that. And I had a pretty good handle on building shocks. Uh, that was kind of kind of always my thing. And I was always trying new stuff, trying to make the truck better, trying to make it work better, you know, doing the best I could with what I had. Every bit of money I made always went back into my program and always went back to, you know, putting stronger spindles on the truck or upgrading my shock program or, or getting a better motor or a better transmission or putting spares in the trailer. So it was always about putting the money back into the truck to to do always go out and so that I could leave that show that night knowing that I left nothing on the track. I wanted to give those fans what they came to see, you know, 110% performance. Um, so the world record jump came about and I was like, you know, and, and 2010 was when I made it happen for the first time. And uh, there's a whole nother story leading up to it that we don't even have time to get into that was just, that was just absolutely heartbreaking and, and about, just about broke me as a person uh, leading up to that jump that a lot of people don't really know what I went through in weeks prior to that jump and then only to have an absolute devastation happen five days before the jump when I was doing a practice jump. Um, absolutely destroyed the truck in a practice jump. Uh, the video went viral practically overnight. Uh, I crashed my brains out, uh, just absolutely destroyed the truck, hurt myself. Um, I, I hit so hard that I actually stretched the harnesses and had to put new harnesses in the truck. That's how hard I hit. Um, I was literally about 65 feet above the ground, and the truck just totally ran out of forward momentum and just became a 12,000-pound lawn dart and went sh straight down into the ground and cartwheeled and got all tore to hell. And I literally had five days I had to put the truck back together. And uh, with the help of a couple of friends that would stop by here and there, you know, I was a couple hours away from home, and I, I actually literally put the truck back together there in the field, stick-welded the chassis back together, put a new axle housing under the front, and just, you know, long, long hours, you know, just working out of my trailer there in the field uh, where I was actually doing the record jump at. It was at a friend's farm, and they do a big event called the, called the Cornfield 500 every year. And um, I had always done mantra truck shows for them up to that point. Uh, you know, they would have, like... Uh, like mini stocks and they'd race them and stuff, you know, and they had a freestyle motocross and mud trucks and they had monster trucks and we would go and do freestyle performances and they had a, a huge amount of land and it was the only people that I knew that had the land suitable for me to get up to the speed that I needed to, to make that record jump happen. And they were also uh, Blair and Sabrina, they're like family to me. And, you know, they really did whatever they could to help me make that jump possible and I was like, you know what, I'm not even going to consider trying to do this jump anywhere else because these people deserve me to, to do a big event like this at their, at their place, at their event. And it happens every year on Labor Day weekend. So uh, I put the truck back together, went out and um, made uh, two successful jumps, you know, and uh, the second one broke the record. I went uh, 200, 
what I go, 208 feet. Um, so I beat Bigfoot's record that stood for uh, over 10 years. Um, I beat it by a couple of, by a few feet. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a huge, huge accomplishment for me and, and my team. Um, you know, and then I think it was about two years later, Bigfoot came back and they went for the record again. And they went like, I think 214 or something like that. They beat my record by a few feet and just my nature. I'm like, no, no, hell no, 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 I'm going back and doing it again. So literally the very next year, um, you know, I did whatever I could to get that truck to go as fast as I absolutely possibly could get it to go and went back to the Cornfield 500 Labor Day weekend, hit the same exact ramp that I did a few years prior and um, went 237 feet. So, um, and that's still the record that stands today and nobody has even tried it, but uh, you can bet your ass if anybody breaks it, I'll be going after it again. So do you know what your takeoff speed was uh, when you did that second jump? Oh yeah, I uh, was doing 85 miles an hour, which actually at the time was uh, just shy of two miles an hour uh, under the land speed record in a monster truck because they don't they don't handle real well at those kind of speeds. You know, you got a lot of moving parts, you got full hydraulic steering, you got 700 pounds per tire on each corner. Uh, they're anything but you know a finely tuned race car. It's like driving a really fast backhoe is the best way I could describe it. <laughs> a really fast backhoe. And I hit that son of a bitch as fast as I possibly could with my foot to the floor, knowing that I was giving it all she had and whatever happened, happened. If I crashed, it was going to be spectacular and the cameras were rolling and there was a lot of people there to watch it. But uh, I, I pulled it out just barely and uh, broke the record. So, but I still think with a little bit more, a little bit more uh, research going into the, the actual ramp and getting the truck going a little bit faster, I think 300 feet is definitely possible because... At 300 feet, I could say I jumped the length of a football field in a 12,000-pound truck. So I think that's kind of my ultimate goal, you know, with that if I ever do it again. Man, that's absolutely insane. So so you complete that jump, and then you kind of make this, the switch over to uh, dirt track racing. Uh, what made you kind of decide to go from uh, late model to, to micro up into uh, the sprint car rake? Like, why not why not stay with the, uh, the late model? Well, I actually, um, with the late model, I just... Uh, I don't know, maybe it was just because it was a full body car. I just got really sick of all the beating and banging. And, you know, I felt like I had a target on my back because when I go to the track, I'm, you know, I've got a nice looking trailer and my car is always clean. I got a nice looking vinyl wrap on it. And that's because a lot of my sponsors that I've had through my years of monster trucks have carried over with me into dirt track racing. Um, they would always tell me, we don't care what you're racing. We sponsor you. We want to partner with you because we know you're going to promote our brand properly with your social media uh, with your testimonials, with your on-track presence. We know that no matter what you're behind the wheel of, you're going to do the right thing for us. So I've got vinyl sponsors and oil sponsors, and you know I've got Amsoil, Ripped Vinyl, FK Rod Ends. All these companies have been with me for a long time, and they've always stood behind me no matter what I do. So I go to the track, and you got a lot of guys that I think really have kind of a small, narrow-minded way of thinking unfortunately, when you go to some of these places and they see me roll in, they're like, who the hell is this new guy? He's some big shot monster truck guy thinks he's going to race late models now. And they just beat the shit out of you on the track. They pummel you from the back. They door the hell out of you. They take you out. You know, I, every time I was starting to, to run good, somebody would crash me out, you know, and it was just, you know, nobody seemed like they could make a clean pass. It was just a lot of rubbing and beating and banging. And it just got really frustrating because I ended up spending so much time and so much money just repairing the car 
instead of actually trying to make it go faster or trying to make That's it true. better, it was just always spent fixing the damn thing. So the next year I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm focusing on my business. You know, high octane was just in its infancy. I just started it. I was like, you know, unfortunately I may have to take this year off from racing. Um, you know, late models were definitely out of the question because they're so expensive. Um, and I had such a bad taste in my mouth from doing it my first year. I was like, you know, maybe I should just sit this season out, focus on building my business, and, uh, you know, then maybe next year I can get back into racing. Um, and that lasted about two weeks. And, <laughs> and, and I, had, I had a 450R uh, race quad. And um, I was sitting there, and I was riding motocross. I have a little track in my yard and everything. I was like, you know, what am I doing this for? I'm not trying to race anymore. A lot of my friends quit. You know, I'm just going to hurt myself. And, you know, because um, in motocross, we all know it's, it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when, you know. So I had this 450R, and I put it up for sale. And, for, you know, and like I said, it lasted about two weeks, and I started thinking about racing again. And I was like, you know what? There's this track right down the road, Deerfield Speedway. It's 15 miles from my house, and they race these little sprint cars. I wonder what it costs to get in one of those. So I started looking on Craigslist and looking online and stuff, and sure enough, I found a nice RTS car, complete, and um, the guy said, for sale or trade. It's like, okay, well, let me see if he's interested in a race quad. And he said, yeah, you got a title for it? I said, yeah, I sure do. And uh, so I brought it over there, and he liked it, and sure enough, I gave him the quad, gave him the title, and he gave me a... 600 micro sprint. The only thing I needed to do was I, I cleaned it up and put my vinyl on it and powder coated the chassis and put a fresh set of tires on it. And I was back in action, <laughs> you know? So um, it was cool. I went right down the road. I, I started racing out there at Deerfield, had a really good time, got my first taste of, you know, open wheel racing. And you know what? I raced all season and didn't so much as fi have to fix one single dent in the car. You know, the guys, even with the micro sprints, raced it exceptionally clean. Everybody had a good time. You know, everybody was really respectful with each other. Um, so I was like, you know what? This is cool. I like this. And I, had, I knew some people in the sprint car world. Um, uh, Gary Edwards was a friend of mine, or still is a friend of mine, and, and he was working with Tim Schaefer's team, uh, which is based out of the next town over from me, uh, Demi and Rudzik Racing. Um, they have also become really, really good friends of mine, and that's actually who I get a lot of my cars and my parts from is uh, Tim Schaefer's stuff. Um, Demi, from Demi and Rudzik. So I started talking to these guys. I'm like, and uh, Gary, from the first time he saw me in a micro sprint, because he came and helped me set it up. And I had never driven one before in my life. My first time on track, as soon as I pulled off the track, he goes, you need to, you need to be in a, in a big car. You need to be in a real car. <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, but I can't afford that shit. You know, I got a $4,000 micro sprint here. This is the best I can do right now, you know? So I was like, you know what? Maybe that's our goal for next year. Our, next, our goal for next year is get up into sprint cars, you know, the 305 scene around here was still still pretty hopping, you know, with Fremont, Attica, Mercer Raceway. So I was like, you know what, that seems affordable, you know, and, it's, and I'm not getting into a 900-horsepower monster my first time in a full-size sprint car. So um, that was my goal, you know, was to do well in the micro sprint, sell it, and get into a 305 sprint the next year. And fortunately, with the help of my sponsors, I was able to make that happen. Oh, it's badass, man. So, so what was that transition like going from the, the micro to the sprinter? I still got to believe that was probably a pretty big jump just in terms of, uh, you know, uh, what it takes to drive one of those cars. Actually, to be perfectly honest, it wasn't a big jump at all. Um, the cars work exactly the same. Um, you know, the little micros at Deerfield, it's a quarter mile track. 
you know, we were at we were topping out at 75, 80 miles an hour down the straightaway, which is pretty good in those little things. And they wing over, and, and you know, torsion bar suspension, they work just like a big car. Um, so when I got into a 305, it really it, it really wasn't a big shock at all. Um, you know, so it, uh, it like the micro sprint stuff definitely, definitely helped a lot. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's that's uh, that's really cool to hear because I know that, you know, talking to some of my buddies that, that race micros, one of the things that they, they talk about is it's kind of like the only class that's that's very similar to like a dirt bike. You know, you can, um, you know, uh start kind of like at the, you know, the restrictor level, then go into like an A class and then work your way up into an outlaw. And it just kind of has like a built-in ladder system, uh, to kind of take you up through the ranks. So that's, that's super cool that it translates even all the way up to a, uh, you know, like a 305 sprint car. So have, have you had a chance to, to test out the, uh, the 410 sprint car at all? Only on iRacing, man. <laughs> <laughs> have not been in one, uh, haven't been one, uh, in one yet, but, um, I don't know. I've always, everything that I've always driven over the years, and I've driven a lot of stuff, I've raced a lot of stuff, um, it usually comes pretty, pretty naturally. I'm usually pretty comfortable, and I'm usually pretty good about not driving over my head, um, you know, too soon. I, I get in something, and I can kind of feel, you know, my level of ability and where it's at, and I don't push it until I feel like I'm ready. Um, which in a 305 was on about the sixth lap on my first time behind the wheel. Um, actually, uh, uh, my buddy Colton Rudzik, his dad is uh, is Jeff Rudzik, who's partners with Joe Demian on Demian Rudzik Racing on the 49 car. Okay. They were at Lernerville, my very first time in a sprint car. I went and I went there, and I, and really, it's just me and my girlfriend. I don't have any crew. I've had no help with it. Um, just I call on those guys and I ask their opinion on setups and things like that, and I base everything off of the uh, the uh, handbook online from Triple X, and I just kind of go from there. So me and my girl roll into Lernerville. I'd never been in a sprint car before, and my I, I come off the I you know went and made some laps out there, and Gary Edwards was there with uh, with the forty nine car, and he comes over to me after I come off the track. He's like, dude, he's like, you could not have driven around that track any better. Everything you did was right. The the track is slick. You're you're not driving over your head. The car is working well. You're driving it well. You're running low. You're running high. I saw you changing up your lines, trying different things. Um, you know, and for him to come and tell me that, I was like, you know what, I, that, that, that kind of assured me that I was doing the right thing, that I was in the right car, that I was, you know, my future goals of, of working my way up in sprint cars, there, there was something there for me, for somebody like that to come and tell me that. Um, and then the next day, I was saying, the next day, Colton Rudzik called me, he goes, dude, he goes, I got to tell you, he goes, my dad doesn't get impressed by very much. He's been in this sport for a long time. And he told me that he was incredibly impressed with what you did last night and that you definitely have a bright future in this sport. And that just gave me such a boost of confidence. And I was like, awesome, you know, I can do this. Um, I'm not just some dumb redneck monster truck driver. <laughs> I, I can be a sprint car driver now. Um, so from that point on, it became all about doing whatever I needed to do to make myself better, to make myself more healthy, uh, even off the track, so that when I'm on the track, I feel 100% you know, mentally capable of being there and, and performing well. Um, so everything was, you know, everything other than when I'm working at my business, everything is now geared towards trying to build a future for myself in sprint car racing. And I've got kind of a, a couple year plan of where I want to be. Um, I'm not sure if I'll get there, but I'm sure as hell giving it my best. So kind of what is that, that long-term plan? I, I, I got to believe like uh, All-Stars is probably somewhere on that list. 
Um, it is, it is. And I've, I've been keeping close tabs on it. I mean, I watch a lot of videos. I try to study things as much as I can. I, I try to go to races and help other guys out whenever I can. Uh, I'm trying to get out to some Outlaws shows this year with uh, uh, DMR and the 49 car to try to just learn whatever I can from them and Tim Schaefer um, as far as the setup of the cars and, and how Timmy drives the car. Um, to just really learn from from guys that have been doing it for a really long time, um, and I and I I just go and I listen and I and I just try to you know do as the best I can and then get behind the wheel and try to apply all everything that I've learned. Um, but uh, there are some all star shows and some outlaw shows close to home this year with Lernerville and Sharon Speedway, uh, Pittsburgh, and um, I'm not saying I'm definitely going to do them, but I'm putting them on my schedule with the goal that. Um, my program is far enough along by the time they roll into town that I don't feel like I'm going to go there and embarrass myself and my whole family by trying to qualify. <laughs> totally. So how much, uh, how much time would you say you kind of put in, uh, per week on your sprint car program, especially like a time like right now, you know, during the off season? Um, actually, uh, during the off season here in winter, I mean, obviously I don't have the budget to go, you know, across the country and go race. I'm hoping that next year I can, um, you know, so I've got the cars torn down in the shop. I'm putting every dime that I could possibly save up. Anything that I don't need, I'm selling. Any sponsorship money that comes in, I'm I'm putting everything into the pot for you know of you know my 410 motors. And um, you know, aside from you know that, I'm been trying to secure whatever sponsors that I can. Any you know retaining my current ones, you know, making sure that I'm doing what they want me to do, and and I'm marketing them to the best of my ability. And 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 I'm also reaching out to some new potential partners. And seeing how I can help grow their brand through my racing and through my social media program, um, because I've always kind of considered myself part racer, part marketing guy, because the two really go hand in hand when you don't have a huge bankroll to go and race. If it wasn't for my marketing partners, I always say it, I, I'd be lucky to even be racing RC cars. So um, I do my best for them so that a lot of my off season is spent trying to make all that stuff and I'll put all those pieces together. Um, also my physical fitness, which I, I keep on top of all year. I'm really heavily into cycling, still mountain biking, uh, road biking. Um, now that the, you know, it's crappy as hell outside and we can't go ride. Uh, we're doing indoor cycling. Uh, me and my girlfriend go three times a week and we go for an hour, one hour to 90 minute sessions of just nonstop intense cycling. Um, cause I feel that if you're physically fit, uh, at least for me, from physically fit, my brain functions at a much higher rate of speed when I'm behind the wheel of the car. Um, I, I don't get any fatigue when I'm behind the wheel. Um, I never find myself breathing heavy or out of breath when I get out of the car, no matter how, ten, how intense the battle is on the track. I feel like my mind is always there and I'm always calm and collected. And I kind of attribute that to being physically fit and, and eating healthy and training, training healthy. Um, that plus I got into iRacing, which at first I looked at and I was like, you know, it just looks like a glorified video game to me. And I haven't played a video game since I was in middle school. I don't even have TV. Like I don't have time. Like, I feel like it's a total waste of time unless I'm watching something to do with sprint car racing. It's a waste of time for me because it's not making me any better at something. It's not making me a better businessman. It's not making me a better race car driver. So it's a waste of my time. So I, but then I started looking at iRacing a little bit more. And I see the guys that are doing it. I see guys like Tony Stewart's doing it. And I'm like, you know what? Between owning racetracks, running the All-Star Series, and racing himself, I'm pretty sure Tony Stewart doesn't have a whole lot of time on his hands to screw off playing video games. <laughs> so there must be a reason he's, do he's doing iRacing. 
So I started looking into it a little bit more and I'm like, wow, this is, you know, I tried it at a buddy's house and I'm like, wow, this is actually really, really realistic. This is about as close as you can get to actually being in a real car. So I got myself into iRacing. Um, again, I've got another, I had a marketing partner on board, Start Gaming. And um, they, this is a, a guy that builds some of, I mean, and I know nothing about computers, so I'm not even going to pretend to know anything about them. But this guy builds some just really, really cool gaming computers that run really, really fast and at a high rate of speed. And I told him what I'm doing with iRacing. And uh, he wanted to, to work with me on some stuff and help get his name out there in the racing world because there's a lot of racers that are, you know, starting to turn towards iRacing. And he wants to be the guy to provide them with the proper equipment. So I took one of my old ISP racing seats and I built a, a rig out in my shop on my welding table. It looks like a little sprint car kind of and made the steering wheel adjustable and all that stuff. And uh, literally just got it set up about a week or two ago. And I'm literally on there for probably about an hour every night. And uh, I really, really can see the benefit of doing that in the off season when I can't actually be behind the wheel of a race car. Um, you know, it's really the next best thing because I'm running on tracks that are, you know, they're, they're real, the real tracks. Um, the cars really work very similar to a real car. All the setups that you can do on iRacing are all the same things you would be doing at the track. So I'll go out on a track, put it into the wall, come back in, change the setup around, go out, see what it does. So it's also teaching me about setup too, because I'm still, to me, that's always been the biggest struggle is knowing how to set the car up. I feel like I can go out there and I can work with what I have and I can tell you what the car is doing very, very well. I can, I can, I can, I can uh, relate that back to a crew chief extremely well, but I don't know how to, what to do about it. Sometimes I don't know how to read the conditions of the track before I'm actually on the track and, and make the correct adjustments to the car between the heat race and the feature. Um, so I think with iRacing, it's, it's kind of training my brain a lot more as far as making those different adjustments on the car and, and seeing how they, how they actually work, you know, once you go out, back out on the track. So um, for me, that's really the best thing that I can do right now uh, is, uh, is get on that as much as possible. And then when uh, April rolls around, a lot of tracks open up uh, almost every weekend for open practice, and I'll go and use that to my advantage as best I can. I'll go and put in lap after lap after lap after lap until I feel comfortable behind the wheel of the car. And once I feel comfortable, I start changing the setups around, and I start changing things and trying to see what it does to the car and really just try to educate myself on setup and on driving. Man, that's awesome. Um, I uh, I was super into iRacing uh, back in, like, I guess – maybe 2009 it was like right after it just came back and I it was on the obviously on the asphalt side um but I put a ton of hours into that and I, I completely agree with you I think it's one of the most underrated tools uh, out there and I, I don't think it's going to be underrated very long uh just to your point from the guys that you see that are that are putting in time and and you know when the results start to to show from that um I think you're going to see a big influx of guys in there so and one of the other things that, that I did want to hit on too because I you know my background is uh marketing and advertising that's that's my day job and you definitely do uh, one of the best jobs out there. I mean, I, I was looking at your Instagram the other day, and you've got like 30,000 fans. And, and you know, you look at uh, like a Donnie Schatz doesn't doesn't have that, uh, you know, on his Instagram account. So that's that's a testament, uh, you know, to your ability to, to market yourself. And that's a that's a huge component of the, uh, you know, the, the, the racing world is you have to be able to deliver that value for your sponsors. So talk to me a little bit about kind of how much time you spend on social media and, and kind of the role that plays in your program, too. Way too 
too much. <laughs> way too much. Um, you know, and I'm one of those guys that I don't like the digital era. You know, I, and, you know, as much as you see me on social media and stuff like that, you know, if it wasn't for racing and if it wasn't for being in business and, and it wasn't for relying so heavily on my marketing program to be able to go and race, I quite honestly, I might not even have a cell phone. I have an answer machine at the house. You know, I'll call you when I get home. You know, I just... <laughs> I just, I, I would much rather prefer being out in the shop, you know, greasy, filthy, covered in, you know, you know, grinding dust and welding sparks burning my arms. Like that's where I feel comfortable, you know, like, and that's what I really love. And that's when I, I'm like old school about that kind of stuff. I feel like a, a good day's hard work is, is worth a million bucks, you know, and it makes you feel like a million bucks and makes you feel like you accomplished something. I, I hate like having my head hunched over stuck in my phone for a lot of, a lot of time, but it's not going away, you know? And I think a lot of guys have that, that view like I have, but they just stick to it. They don't say, well, I don't like this, but I need to do it to further my career in racing. I need to do it to reach out to the fans. Um, you know, I think that's a big part of what I've like coming from the monster truck side of things, you know, it really, it's all about the show. Yes. It's a competition, but we're not making any more money, like I said, if you get first or if you get last. It really becomes as much of a competition as you want to make of it with you and your buddies. So it's, it's all about putting on a show for the fans, the interviews, the, the, the right paint jobs, and just going out and putting on a good show and interacting with fans and making them, making them feel good about their experience and giving them something to go home and talk about. Um, so I kind of I carry that over into my racing program because no matter how you look at it, no matter how competitive you are, and believe me, I consider myself an extremely competitive person, it's a show. It's, it's entertainment. People are paying their hard-earned dollar to come out on a Saturday night to the local track to be entertained. Um, they want to get away from their, from their daily grind, from their weekly grind, and, 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 and be engrossed in something for a few hours and be entertained and go home and talk about it and come back the next week and, and, because, and tell all their friends because of the show that they saw. And I think if you lose touch of that, if everybody loses touch of that, then it's going to be very hard to keep those fans coming back. It's going to be very hard, and you're going to keep seeing tracks close because there's, you know, no matter how many racers are there and how much money you think they're making at the back gate, they still need those ticket sales. They still need those fans to come and buy a hamburger or a hot dog and and, and pay that admission price and come and bring their family for some good quality entertainment. So I think it's, it's the entertainment and the, so, the social media goes hand in hand with the entertainment. You entertain them on the weekends and you stay in touch with, with fans and supporters during the week. Um, you know, it goes a step beyond just marketing your sponsors and things like that. Because if you don't have the fans and you don't have the engagement with the fans, then you've got nothing to show sponsors. Uh, the whole win on Sunday, sell on Monday mentality um, pretty much went out of style at the turn of the millennium, I think. Um, guys aren't just going to show up on your doorstep with a bag of money and say, here you go, throw my sticker on your car and go out and get them. Go win, and I'll give you some more money if you win. It just, you know, it may happen here and there, but from my experience, you have to really give them the extra, you know, return on their investment. And because you are an ambassador for their product and you have to utilize the fact that racing has a very, very high brand loyalty factor, higher than any other sport in the world is racing with the brand loyalty. 
And that is because fans can relate to the racers. Most racers' heads aren't up in the clouds and everything. And, and you know, they're, they're down-to-earth dudes, you know, just going fast. And fans relate to that. And you have to, you have to make sure that uh, they feel appreciated by coming out to the track. So, you know, I try to engage with the fans as much as I possibly can through social media uh, because I do appreciate them coming out, whether they're coming to see me jump a monster truck or they're coming to see me, you know, rail the cushion in a sprint car on Saturday night. They're coming to watch me. They're coming. They're buying my shirts. They're supporting my sponsors. I see it on a day-to-day basis. People come in my coffee shop every day that I've never met before because they saw me at the races or they saw me racing online or they saw my 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 car on social media and uh or they know or they and then they find out about my story or something like that so it, it's i'm really appreciative of that and i want to make sure that i retain those fans because if it wasn't for them you know we ain't going to be able to go and race so the that's where the social media just really really comes into play um because nowadays the modern equivalent to uh commenting on a kid's picture is is like signing the hat on your head and giving it to them. They think that highly of it, that you took the time to say something to them or interact with them uh, and that you're not too good to, to associate with them. Um, and that resonates, I think, really, really loud with fans. Um, and I think it's something that can definitely be improved upon in dirt track racing, in my opinion. Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more. I hope uh, a, a lot of people heard that because that's uh, uh, th- that's the best advice. You know, I, I, it always kind of drives me nuts a little bit when I hear, you know, oh, social media is, you know, killing the sport of dirt track racing or it caused this track to, to close or whatever. That's that small-minded, narrow way of thinking. Yep, yep, yep. Absolutely, man. It's like it, the, the, it's just a tool, and it's however you use that tool. And a guy like yourself, who's who's being open and accessible, uh, and is interacting with the fans, it's it's going to be a tool that's going to be used to grow the sport. And you're just going to be attracting that many more people to it, uh, and it's just going to make it, it's going to make the sport better for everyone. So, um, you know, I, I obviously speak for everyone who gets it. You know, when when I say thank you to, to drivers like you who do that, because it only makes the uh, the sport better. Um, so. So with that said, where can people kind of kind of find you and follow you on social media? Um, I'm Joe Sylvester eight on pretty much everything: uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, my Facebook fan page. Um, my website is joesylvester8.com, even though it kind of needs some some update in a little bit. Um, I'm not as active on Twitter as I probably should be. I noticed Twitter's really really um, it's really popular in the dirt track world, and I kind of never really never spent much time on it because. I like Instagram so much. I think Instagram is a much better tool to interact with people. It's much easier to interact with people. And people are very visual. They want to see pictures. They want to see videos. They want to see what's going on, not just, you know, see some witty comment or something like that on Twitter. So that was kind of my whole way of thinking. But I'm kind of becoming accustomed to that, you know, a lot of people in Dirt Track are using Twitter. So I need to try to start building that up a little bit more. Um, because my, you know, my fan base for so long has been centered around monster trucks. Um, you know, a big chunk of those, you know, 34,000 followers are from the monster truck side of things. So I'm still the new guy in dirt track racing and I'm really, really trying to add a new flavor and a new unique attitude to, you know, to dirt track racing through my personality and my background uh, and my social media reach. Uh, and I'm starting to see it. I'm starting to see a lot more people coming in on social media and a lot more fans. Um, and I'm really also trying to use iRacing as kind of another social platform for me to interact with fans. And every day I think about it, I keep thinking how cool it is 
that fans and supporters can go on iRacing and race with me. I can host a practice session and anybody on my friends list can come and join and have fun and race me and put me into the wall and wreck me, whatever. <laughs> you know, we could we could have conversations back and forth on, you know, on the headset and everything. And I'm like, no, this is really, really cool. This is a step above and beyond commenting on somebody's picture or people liking my stuff or watching my videos on Instagram and stuff like that. This is real world interaction and it's on a global scale. Um, so I'm, I'm really have a lot of cool, unique ideas in store for my iRacing program over the next couple of months. Actually, when I debut my new uh, vinyl wrap schemes and designs for my wingless car and my wing car this year, the first place I'm going to do it is on iRacing. And I'm going to have a, I'm going to host a two hour test session, wingless test session, uh, and it's going to be open to anybody that's on my friends list on iRacing. So you got to follow me on iRacing. You got to be on my friends list, and it's going to be open to anybody on my friends list to come and join for two hours, an open test session with me in a wingless sprint car, uh, and that'll be the first time you get to see the 2018 High Octane Coffee Number Eight car and the new and the new wrap that we have designed for it. And then I'll do the same thing for my wing car. I'll do another two-hour open test session for anybody on my friends my friends list on iRacing. So I think it's giving more people an incentive to come and, and follow me on there. And and it, it's I think it's a lot of fun too to interact with everybody on there. It's it's given me a chance to to race and and kind of hang out with people that are watching me on the weekends or maybe they're on the other side of the country but they see my social media. And they have iRacing. They're like, oh, I can go screw around with Joe for an hour tonight and go do iRacing and talk with them and stuff like that. So it's really, really cool. And the reach of it is, is really unlimited. So uh, that's how I'm going about some of the things I'm doing this year. So before I even put the new designs out on social media or anything like that, it's going to be on iRacing first. So um, it's, it's kind of exciting. You know, I haven't, it's, I haven't really been this excited about something marketing-wise for a while, but I think it's so cool. Um, that uh, it's gonna. It, who knows where it could go? Yeah, man, no doubt. And as someone who has uh, had a preview of the the new wraps, uh, definitely worth uh, worth checking out because those cars look look badass, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for uh, for uh, coming on this show and 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 supporting not only the, the Dirt Life podcast but uh, you know the Dirt Collective brand. I mean, I think you were one of the first guys that that ever bought uh, a hat, and and you've been a huge supporter ever since. So uh, you know, means the world. And dude, if if you're up for it, I would love to uh, to make this a, a regular occurrence, having you on this show, and and we'll kind of follow your progress on iRacing, racing, follow the the four ten sprint car throughout the season, um, and you know, hopefully get up there to uh to ohio to to get some video of you in, in person man would love to do that absolutely dude i'm all about it you know i've really i know i've only been in a sport for for a few years now but i'm really i really love it i'm loving a lot of the people that i'm meeting uh the fans the drivers um like i said i've got my goals of where i want to be in a couple of years and uh, i really i'm trying to take the proper steps to get there and i'm also trying to do it like i said with a little bit of my own attitude and style along the way um, you know, and I, I really enjoy doing things like this. And, um, I know it's kind of, you know, out of the box thinking for a, a lot of guys in racing and, but I, I think it's a lot of fun. I, I like, you know, talking about different things that are going on and, and interacting with people and promoting the sport overall. I think things like this are great for the sport. It needs more of it. Um, it's such a cool and exciting sport and me coming from kind of the outside, you know, coming into the sport, 
there's a lot of people out there, believe it or not, that have no idea what the hell a sprint car is. <laughs> that have no idea what a wingless sprint car is. And they sure as hell have never been to a filthy, dusty dirt track on the weekend. But you know what? I've reached a lot of people, and I can honestly say that I've gotten people to go to the races for the first time, and now they're hooked. Yep. They're like, dude, this is nuts. Yep. These things are so fast. The racing is insane. You know, people think circle track, They what's the, what do they think about? They think NASCAR. Yep. And they're watching on TV, and they're seeing these, you know, kind of corporate interviews and things like that, and there's not any... I don't know. There's just no, uh, what am I looking for? Originality yeah. or, or, or uh, depth to it. Yeah. And they go to the dirt track and they see the racing and the guys are down and dirty and just competitive as all hell. There's passing going on like crazy. There's fans that hate each other. There's fans that hate drivers. It's extremely emotional and entertaining. So, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up into thinking that, you know, we all know what it is, but there's a lot of the outside world that has no idea. Um, that little quarter-mile track, Deerfield Speedway, that I raced my micro sprint at, it's literally 15 miles outside of town that has a population of 60,000 people. It's right on the main highway. It's easily accessible from people from Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Akron, very, very large demographic areas of people that are probably looking for stuff to do on a Friday or Saturday night that have no idea about dirt track racing. And for so long... It has been kind of a little hole-in-the-wall track, and you know, there's maybe five to 800 people in the stands on a Saturday night, and that's kind of the way it's been. But what's super exciting this year is new owners grabbed a hold of the track. They realize the potential that the track has because of its location, because of all the property that it sits on, and they're like, you know what? We're going to invest some money in this place and break the mold of what this track has been forever. We're going to build the track up. We're going to build the catch fence up. We're adding... 2,500 seats to the grandstands, cutting down 11 acres of trees, adding more parking, more concessions, more pit area, and we're going to bring in wingless sprint cars for a 12-way race series. That's awesome. And they actually had us go out there, and four of us went and did a, a private test session on the track as it was. They didn't make any changes to it and went out there and had us come in, and they said, we want to run you guys next year. What do we need to do to make this track uh good for you guys as racers and safe for you and the fans. And they listened in detail to every single thing that we had to say. And they said, and they, and it, and it resonated very, very much. Uh, so they're making a lot of modifications to that place this year. They're really amping up their marketing. Um, and it's, it's really exciting. You know, I mean, uh, it's, I mean, it's definitely going to be a little of a challenge in the racing world, I think for them to kind of break free from the, the image that that track has had, but I don't think it'll take that long. I think more importantly is the fact that they're going to start reaching all these people in these larger larger cities that can be at that track in 20 minutes driving down a main road and turn it into the parking lot and go watch sprint cars on a Saturday night. Um, that, I think, is, is, is what's so exciting about it. Yeah, no doubt, man. I mean, I feel like the sport's the, the best-kept secret uh, in, in all of entertainment, really, and I, I don't think it's going to be a, a secret for, for that much longer because uh, I'm seeing the same thing. I mean, I was just at uh, Gateway Indoor, and, and a guy like Cody Summer, what he's doing, um, it just seems kind of like a, to be a— That dude is amazing. Yeah. I applaud him tremendously. Um, what he is doing for the sport dirt track racing is so awesome. Um, again, from somebody from the outside looking in and coming into the sport with some different ideas and, and background. And, and I've, so I know the production that goes into something like that. I've performed at that stadium with Monster Jam 
probably three or four different times. Uh, I know the production that it, go, that it takes to go into a big venue like that and pull it off. Um, I've even done a show myself at the local fairgrounds. I promoted my own show. I booked the trucks. I booked the, the freestyle motocross. I did all the marketing and everything like that. It's a lot of damn work. Oh, yeah. You know what? That is a tremendous risk. Totally. Tremendous risk. Totally. So my hat is off to him. And I'll tell you what, if he's running sprint cars next year, you can definitely, or this year, you can count on the number eight car being there. <laughs> well, uh, I, I haven't heard uh, for sure, you know, if he is or not, but I, I would say just kind of knowing uh, what I know about him and, and the brief chance I've had to meet him, uh, keep the keep the trailer ready because, uh, yeah, you, you, you never know, man. And, and and likewise, if he does that, dude, I will, will be there in a heartbeat because that's going to be an amazing show. Is, is he the same guy that owns Mansfield Speedway too now? Yeah, yeah, he is, and, and he did. Uh, he, you know, his kind of first big event was Indy Indoors, which was also, you know, not not obviously nearly as, as successful as the Gateway Dirt, but just like for, from like a pure promotional standpoint, just blew the doors off of what you know everybody else was doing at the time. It's just, uh, yeah, he, he takes yeah. risks, he has vision, and yeah, it's just just a cool dude. Yeah, that it's really cool to see what they did with Mansfield Speedway. I mean, that place is, is awesome. I mean, it's a first class facility all the way. I went. And, I did the 305 race there uh, last year. Um, absolutely got my ass handed to me, but you know it was a really, it was a really good time. Um, you know it was, uh, you know, we definitely struggled with the setup a lot, but um, it was such a cool venue to be a part of, and their marketing that they're doing for that place, and just you know the pyro they're doing and things like that. You know, I mean, a lot of guys I don't think notice that kind of stuff, but I do. Like I said, coming from the showman side of things and with monster trucks. And seeing the overall picture for the show, yep. for the fans, yep. those fans, I mean, that's a, that's a, it was looked like a World Outlaws show. For sure. You know I mean, it was extremely well, well put together, I think. Yeah, and then there's two more. There's the uh, like the Sprint Car World Championships that he's putting on, and then the uh, uh, they're doing a, a million dollar race there for late models. It's gonna be a cool season, man. I'm I'm super stoked, uh, you know, about kind of what he has going on, and just all the more reason that I need to get up uh, to Ohio and check some things out up there because yeah, that's clearly where it's at right now. Yeah, absolutely, man. There's a lot of stuff going on up here, and I'm ex- it's an exciting time to be in a Sprint Car too because. Uh, like I said, with the wingless stuff, with with Deerfield opening up, being a little quarter mile, they're they're really increasing the banking and stuff. Should should be a really nice little bull ring. And then with um, you know you got the Boss Wingless series that runs around the area, and then we've got Sharon Speedway running ten or twelve races this year, four ten wing sprint cars. Pittsburgh running uh, about a dozen, I believe, four ten wing sprint car shows. Wayne County right down the road, who just redid their track. And they run sprint cars for a very healthy payout every Saturday night. I mean, like I said, I don't have no reason to travel more than a couple hours away from here um, to hit some really good tracks and race with some really, really good dudes and hopefully, you know, learn a lot. So you let me know when you're ready to come up here, man. We got a guest room for you and, you know, cook you some pasta. Dude, say no more. I will uh, be packing my bags right now. Well, dude, it was great again having you on. Thank you again so much. Uh, let's do this again soon. Uh, and obviously we'll be staying in touch, you know, on, on social media and all that good stuff, man. But thank you again. Thank you, man. Anytime, anytime. All right. Well, hey, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, this has been the uh, the Dirt Life Podcast. Be sure to uh, make sure you're following us on Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, all that stuff. Be sure to check out the new movie, uh, Dirt in December, now on uh, Vimeo On Demand. Uh, and yeah, until next time, stock up on some high-octane coffee, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. 
This has been another episode of Dirt Life. Want more? Check us out at dirtcollective.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.